Let me give a quick disclaimer, by the way. Um, today's section in Luke is very graphic. Um, it is uh, dealing with Jesus' death on the cross. And, uh, and so there's going to be some very graphic details. And uh, we could, I could treat this in such a way that we, I don't share the details graphically, but I don't feel that that does justice to the text. So um, if, there, if you have kids in here, I just ask you to exercise discernment. These, this is the truth. This actually are things that happen, but uh, mom and dad, you know individually what your kids can handle. So let me just throw that out there. Um, we left off with Jesus on trial. And we're seeing the culmination of his work here. Everything's coming to a head. Everything that Jesus came to do is now uh, finding its fulfillment. Um, and, uh, you know, Jesus, when he performed his very first miracle, um, you know, his mom asking him to turn water into wine or take care of the, the wine problem there at the wedding feast in Cana. And his re- immediate response was, my hour has not yet come. And uh, kind of an odd thing, he goes ahead and he takes care of it, performs the miracle and all, but, but really what he was talking about is what we're reading about here today. Um, the, the hour, everything comes down to this. Um, and, uh, and so we left Jesus uh, on trial. Uh, he'd, he'd been on trial before the high priest, he'd been on trial before the Sanhedrin, he'd been on trial before Pilate, Pilate had kicked him to Herod, Herod there on trial before him, kicked him back to Pilate, and uh, in verse 25 we read that Pilate released to them, speaking of the mob that had taken Jesus and was demanding that he be found guilty and put to death, and so Pilate released to this mob the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And of course, we saw that the one that they requested was a guy by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas, um, the verse 25 tells us, was a rebel, and he was a murderer. And we saw last week that really, metaphorically speaking, we are all Barabbas. We are these rebels. We, are, we have blood on our hands, and uh, we are all guilty. Um, the prophet Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And, uh, and this describes us. And apart from Jesus, at our core, we are sinners by nature and by choice. This is, this is who we are. Sinners by nature and by choice. And it's interesting, I didn't get into this last week, but the name Barabbas, it actually means son of the father. Son of the father. And Jesus, in a previous exchange, when he was debating with the religious leaders, um, and they are grasping and, and being so proud of their heritage, and that they are, you know, who their forefathers were. Um, and uh, they're, they're standing on that. And, uh, and Jesus is trying to, you know, get them to see the light and the depravity of their sin and their great need um, for, to, to worship God the Father in, by receiving his son and surrendering their life to him and, and believing in the only one who can pay the penalty for their sins. But they're locked in the law and this worship of, of you know, the, the, the laws and the systems that are all really ironically in place to point them to the Messiah. But they thought that they could be right through their religion, through their good deeds, through the things that they would do, the sacrifices that they were making to atone for their own sin and all, which were always intended to show them that they needed help. They were all, the law was intended to show us that we are lawbreakers and that we are all guilty and that we are in desperate need of somebody who can set us free and who can cleanse us from sin. 
so Jesus is in this debate with these guys, and they're all talking about, you know, their religious heritage and their forefathers and all. And Jesus told them, Matthew or John chapter 8, beginning in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil. And you love to do the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, it's consistent with his character. For he's a liar and he is the father of lies. And so that for us, at the end of the day, it all comes down to a choice. Just as these guys had a choice. And we have to answer, who is it that's going to rule and reign in my life? Is it going to be my father in heaven or is it going to be the father of lies? This is the choice that every one of us needs to make. And because God is a good God, because he is a loving God, because he is a gracious God, a God who desires that none should perish but that everybody should have everlasting life, this is his, his, his great hope for mankind. And because he is, that is his character and nature, God gives to you and me a choice. He gives us a choice. And here's what Jesus said, John chapter 3, beginning verse 13. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Let me hit the pause button. Jesus there is talking about an event that happened in the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus. And what happened there is that some of the Israelites had been bitten. Many of them had been bitten by poisonous snakes. And they were crying out to, to Moses, asking him to intercede to God to help save them, to deliver them. And what God instructed Moses to do was to take some bronze, fashion it into the image of a snake, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And he told the instructions to the Israelites were, you look upon this bronze snake hanging on this pole, and as you look upon that by faith, you are going to be healed. And all of this was intended to point us to the person and the work of Jesus. It was always intended to do that. The snake was, a, was symbolic of sin, and bronze is a symbol of judgment. And so being affixed to a pole and lifted up, it was to point the people to what the coming atonement would be for their sin. And that is Jesus, who knew no sin, who became sin for us, and was hung on a tree and lifted up. And, and Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself, right? And so what he says here is he says, just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone, he continues, who believes in him will have eternal life. He goes on, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. He loved it so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus continues, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. God's heart, he is a God of love. And he came not as a God of rage or anger or malice or anything like that. He came in love, right, so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment, he says and assures us, against anyone who believes in him. 
But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And so God, because he's a good God and a loving God and a merciful God, he doesn't send people to hell, right? He gives us a choice. If you end up going to hell, it is literally over Jesus' dead body. That's not what God wants for you. And so God gives us a choice. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, we read this, that that the Lord God says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And I want you to understand this choice costs us nothing, but it costs Jesus everything so that you could have this choice. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul tells the Romans, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. And now most people, he goes on to say, would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might um, be willing to, to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is the heart of God. And here now in our text, as Paul tells the Romans, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. Here now in our text, it is just the right time. This is the time when Jesus has come to the cross. And today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at a great cost. We're going to look at a great choice. And finally, we're going to look at a great commission. Let's pick it up in verse 26. Uh, Turn out of 1 Timothy now and get where I'm supposed to be. Verse 26, Luke 23, verse 26. Now, as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, What will be done in the dry? The attitude there is, look, if they're doing this to an innocent, righteous person, what are they going to do? What's going to become of the wicked? That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there, there they crucified him. And the criminals on the right hand and the other, one on the right hand and the other on the left. They, they say he comes to the place called Calvary. Calvary is a geographic location. Calvary in the Greek, it means the place of the skull. And, and this was known as the place of the skull for a couple of reasons. One, because it geographically, just as you look at the place, even still to this day, it bears a resemblance, the dirt, the hill there, and the features on the hill bear a resemblance of a skull. And also the place of the skull because it was a prominent location where they would crucify people. And the manner of the day was when they crucified somebody, they'd leave them on a cross, they died a slow lingering death, and then they left the bodies there as a warning to everybody. We'll get back to that in just a minute. And so they crucified him with the criminals on either side. 
Verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and they cast lots for his garments. This was something the psalmist, hundreds of years in advance, had prophesied. One of hundreds, literally, of prophecies that were given about Jesus' life and, and, and the works that he would do and ultimately his death, all of them fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so they divided his, law, his garments, they cast lots for him. Verse 35, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, Hebrew, saying, This is the king of the Jews. Of the Jews. And one of the Gospels says that the religious leaders went back to Pilate when they saw the inscription that he'd nailed above his head in all of these different languages, all of them saying, This is the King of the Jews. And they said, You know, we, we want you to change it. It shouldn't say, This is the King of the Jews. What, should, what it should say is, He claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate basically said, Tough. He said, What I've written, I've written. I'm not going to change it because truly Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Um, And so what we see here and what I just want to kind of camp out on for a minute is a great cost. It is a great cost that Jesus paid. Historically, we see, you know, here as they're leading him away to his crucifixion, they have Simon of Cyrene carry his cross. And historically, it wouldn't work that way. Normally, what would happen when the Romans condemned you to die, what they would do is, okay, if you're going to die by crucifixion, they would saddle you up with your cross and you would carry it to the place of your execution and they would, they would have you paraded through the streets. They would take the longest route possible. And the reason for that is they wanted to strike fear and terror into the people that they were ruling over, those that had been subjugated by them. They had at this day and age what was known as the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And basically what the Peace of Rome was, uh, it was, hey, you don't mess with us and we won't mess with you. See, they'd come in, they'd conquered, they'd subjugated you, and then they basically said, there's a new sheriff in town, and, and you guys, you do everything we tell you to do or we'll kill you. Um, and, and as long as you do everything we tell you to do, everything will be fine. So when somebody crossed the line and they were sentenced to death by crucifixion, the long parade was to say, this is what's going to happen to you. We'll do this to you too if you don't toe the line. And so they would take the longest route possible, and then when they finally got to the place where they were going to execute you, and they always executed people by crucifixion at, the, at very public places, because they wanted everybody to pass by this. Like I said, it took days for people to die oftentimes, and then they'd leave the bodies up there. And so as a person's rotting on the, on the cross, that's either by the, the main thoroughfare or in a prominent place, like in Jesus' case, up on this, this hill, Golgotha, the, the, the place of the skull, they wanted everybody to see it as they're coming into town, as they're going about their business. Constant reminder, don't mess with us, don't cross us. And so uh, this is what would happen. And once they got to the place of their execution, there they've been carrying the cross all the way. They would lay the cross on the ground. They would put the victim 
on the cross. They would nail them to the cross there on the ground, and then they would lift them up in one of a couple of different ways. Either the entire cross there, uh, they, would, they would carry the, the whole cross, be nailed to it. The cross then would be fit into you know, a hole where they would stand it up, and it would drop down into the hole. Or most common, um, and most believe this is the way it actually worked, was that they would, when they carried the cross, they would just carry the cross beam. Uh, the, the, the part that, that your, your hands would be affixed to, and that what would happen is they'd lay, you'd carry that to the place of your crucifixion because, you know, that's seven or eight feet wide anyway, and they would lay that down and, and nail you to that, and then they would hoist you up on a tree or on a, on a pre-positioned pole where then once they got you up to height and, and hoisted you up there, then they would nail your feet into the cross. Either way, this is kind of how it worked. And the person normally who was being crucified would have to carry this all the way, but Jesus, he didn't carry his. What happened there? Well, Matthew sheds some light on this. I'll put it on the screen for you, Matthew 27, 26. It says that Pilate released Barabbas to them, to the the mob that wanted him dead. Um, And when he had scourged Jesus... He divided, uh, he delivered him to be crucified. And so what happens here is that Jesus was scourged before he was crucified. Now, scourging was no joke. Uh, Scourging is such a violent and painful experience that oftentimes just the mere threat of, of scourging somebody would cause them to relent. Like if they had a group of people and mob mentality taking over and they're you know, getting all riled up and all, the authorities would ri- arrive on scene and it wouldn't be you know, the lame kind of things we see here today where there's some big mob and they're screaming and nobody can get order and you know, the police would come out with the shields and they would fight against them. No, a Roman soldier would just walk up and he'd just say, if you don't disperse, we're going to scourge you. And that people would immediately run and, and disperse because they're so afraid of it. It was second only in terms of how horrible it was to endure physically, how painful it was. It was second only to crucifixion. And they did both to Jesus. So they scourged Jesus. Now, when they scourged a person, what they would do, they'd start, they'd strip you naked completely naked, and then they would bend you over a stake and they would tie your hands and your feet to the stake or chain you to the stake such that you couldn't move or wiggle or get out of the way. And that's important because then what they're going to do is they're going to lay into you with a thing called a flagrum. And a flagrum, it was basically a stick, and on the end of the stick were several leather straps that protruded out of this, and, and they would beat you with that. Now, that would hurt just if it was leather, but what they did was embedded in the leather was pieces of broken glass, pieces of sharp metal, heavy lead balls, and and hooks that were designed just like fish hooks to, to dig into your skin. And what would happen is when they would beat you with this, they would lay you into you, and then when those hooks would gather in your skin, then they would drag it as they pulled it out. And the persecution, what was prescribed, was that you would get 40 lashes with this flagrum, and they would subtract one for mercy. And so you would be beaten 39 times with this flagrum, right? And so the the little lead weights that were on the flagrum, they were designed to immediately cause swelling uh, to the area. They were designed to inflict 
uh, a, a blunt force trauma to your tissue, which is already stretched out because of the positioning that you're in, they would cause this blunt force trauma, cause immediate swelling to the area, cause your blood and your fluids to rush to that area, further stretching out the skin, and then conveniently the hooks would come across that area and would just lay it wide open. And so what happens is they would hit you, as I said, 39 times. And they were, the Romans were very cautious. They didn't want the guy that was beating you to run out of gas and not hit you as hard with the last blow as he did with the first blow. So oftentimes they'd have two guys that were positioned to hit you. And when they would hit you, they'd just take turns. One, then the other guy, two, and then your turn, three, and then his turn, four. And when they would hit you, they wouldn't just beat you on the back. They would, the, the flagrum would hit your back. It would hit your sides. It would wrap around. It would hit your chest. It would wrap around and hit your face, your neck, your buttocks, your lower legs. By the time they were done with you, you were destroyed. There are cases, historical records, that describe people so mutilated after a Roman scourging that their spine and their ribs were actually exposed, and in some cases, their bowels would actually spill out from the wounds that they would, they would inflict upon you just from scourging, and this is a Roman scourging, and Jesus took 39 of those. Now, this gives new meaning to Isaiah's prophecy when he says, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. See, Jesus endured this as a righteous man, as an innocent person. He took our sin upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus endured this for us. Most people, there were many people, I won't say most, but many people died just from scourging. They were so, so brutalized by the scourging and as the blood would rush to the area, well, all the blood vessels were wide open and so that they, they, you know, they would bleed like a stuck pig and, and they're, they're just, they would just hemorrhage. And of course, what does your body do when, when you lose so much blood? Your, your blood pressure just bottoms out. And so what your body does, it tells the heart, you gotta beat harder and you gotta beat faster. And so you beat harder and faster, and it's like a, a garden hose that's been just shot with a shotgun, man. There's just, everything's going out. And so some people, they would go into cardiac arrest just from, just from being scourged. And again, Paul told the Corinthians, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus did that for us. But here again, Matthew's gospel tells us this was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. Jesus, before he got scourged, we remember, and we just saw last week, that the guards, Herod's guards among them, beat him up, blindfolded him, and started hitting him. Prophesy, who hits you? So he'd already been brutalized before even being scourged, and then after being scourged, Matthew 27 tells us, then after the scourging that the soldiers of the governor, they took Jesus into the praetorium. This was the, the barracks where the soldiers would be. And they gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Now, he would already have, he was stripped from being 
from being scourged. Then they put his clothes back on him. Now by the time he gets into the garrison, the, he would have already had his, the, the, all of the hemorrhaging and everything into his clothes. And there would have been areas that you know, had, had dried on him. Just like you, know, you have a, a bandage on, that gets adhered to the wound. And then they rip those off again. And so what do they do? They strip him, verse 28, they put a scarlet robe on him, and when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Now these aren't little rose thorns like we have here. These are two, three inches long. You see those when you go to Jerusalem, and they are no joke. And they twisted this crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they stuck a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him in the head where the crown of thorns was, digging that deeply into his head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, yet again stripping it off of him. They put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. And so why does Simon of Cyrene carry his cross? Because Jesus at this point is already a bloody mess. A bloody mess. And it's only after that that they lead him to be crucified. Now, crucifixion, we all know that Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion was the most brutal way that someone could be killed. It was designed to kill you very slowly. The Romans didn't invent it. The Persians invented crucifixion. But the Romans perfected it because the Persian way of crucifying somebody, the person would die too quickly. And because what happens is they start by nailing your hands to the cross. When they nail your hands to the cross, it goes through at the base of your hand. Okay, And when it does that, it pierces the median nerve. And if you've ever hit your elbow and have the fire travel up through your, hand, your arm into your hand, and it burns so badly. Or if you've ever experienced carpal tunnel syndrome that hurts so severely, carpal tunnel syndrome is actually the median nerve, but that fire, that's what you're experiencing. So when they nail you to the cross, this is what you're experiencing. And then what happens is they stretch you down, and then they nail your feet to the cross. And so you're in this position, well, the way your body works physiologically, in order for you to breathe, your diaphragm needs to be able to expand, to, to take in the air and contract, to let out the air. And so what you have to do in order to be able to breathe, you have to pull yourself up to take a breath. And so the Persian way of crucifixion, the person would... would they would asphyxiate, they would, they, would, they would smother to death much too quickly because they would become exhausted. So what the Romans did is they added a little seat to the cross and it, it didn't completely, you know, you still had to pull yourself up to take a breath, but it gave the victim time to get just enough rest that it prolonged the crucifixion from hours to days. And the person would just, just hang there. And meanwhile, they would be ridiculed. They would be spat upon. Wild animals would come. Sometimes there's stories of people that were, had been on the cross for several days and wild animals, while they were still alive, are having them for lunch. This was crucifixion. And so Jesus, he was nailed to that cross and then he was lifted up after having been beaten, after having been scourged, after having been beaten again. And then he was crucified. Now listen, this is a great 
cost. Here's what I want you to understand. We, as Christians, we hear this story. And it, the tragedy is, is that we, we become numb to it. It's like, oh, yeah, I've heard this. I've heard this. And it loses its significance, but we need to stare full face and see what it is that Jesus endured. And I don't want to take the route which so often people take to say, look at all that Jesus endured, and he did it because you are a dirty, awful sinner. And, and just kind of leave it there to where let's, let's preach on the guilt card. You know, I don't, I don't want to do that. What I want to do is true. It's true that Jesus endured all of this because I'm guilty as sin. I am guilty. It is my sin that necessitated that. That's true. But I want to focus today God's love. God did that because he loves you. Because you're precious to God. You're precious to him. And yes, God endured all these things. He, prayed, he paid this great cost. Why? Because he loves you. You. He's desperate for you. He loves you with an unending love. That's what I want you to hear today. And some of you guys, you're here today. I want you to kind of take a walk with, with the picture and the truth that God's not an angry God. He's loving God. And yes, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. And I want you today to have an appreciation of how much God loves you. And some of you, you need to run to and, and receive the love that God has for you. You need to receive that love. I don't want to guilt you into a relationship with God. I want to just tell you that you are loved amazingly. You are so valuable to God. He sent his only son to die for you, to take your sins upon himself because you're precious to him. You're his child. He wants to know you. Well, we see a great choice now, verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged, remember he was crucified with two criminals on either side, and one of the criminals who was hanged, who, uh, who were hanged with him, uh, saying, blasphemed, blasphemed Jesus, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today that you will be with me in paradise." Now, the way this reads, we get the impression that one of the thieves was, was mocking Jesus all the way to his death, and the other thief was actually believing upon Jesus and was in Jesus' corner the whole time and, and, and you know, would end up crying out to Jesus. And so you get the idea that, that, that one was always on his side and the other was always against him, and that's actually not the case. If you read the Gospels, both of Matthew and of Mark, they both tell us that they both started off mocking Jesus. Both of these criminals on the cross, the one on his right hand and on his left, they were mocking Jesus. But after they spent some time on the cross, the second criminal had a change of heart. And here's what I want you to do, just, uh, just hitting the pause button on that. I want you to know that there is always time as long as you have breath in your lung it's never too late for you to make 
that choice to cry out to God. See, Satan, he works both sides of the fence, and on this side of the fence, he tempts you to sin, and then when you lapse into sin, what happens is that you now Satan jumps over on the other side of the fence, and he says, you suck. Look how horrible you are. Like, you did all this stuff. He's the one that tempted you in the first place, and your sinful flesh is totally willing to go along with the program, and the sinful world is urging you on. So you've got this unholy trinity that's against you from day one, tempting you to sin, but then the moment you lapse into it, then the enemy jumps over the other side and says, you can't go to God now, you loser. Look at that. Look at you, 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 You're guilty. And even Christians buy into this to where we know that we've been forgiven of our sin, that I can't earn my salvation, but somehow psychologically, when we fall into sin, we also start believing the lie that, well, I need to let some time pass between my sin and me going back to God. Like, I got to do some stuff to, to, like, butter God up before I even come to him. And that's totally a lie, and it's totally unbiblical. God desires that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. And the thing is, is that the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, so the issue here, we need to understand, it is never too late to make the right choice. Now, what I'm not saying in that, I want to be very clear on this point. What I'm not saying is that you buy into the attitude, which I've heard so many people say, basically the philosophy that says, I'm going to live like hell, and then at the very last, on my deathbed, I'm going to get all my play out. I'm going to get all my thrills in. And then on my deathbed, I'll cry out to God and, and be forgiven of my sins. Now, some people do that. And, and God still is faithful, and he forgives. But that assumes that you're going to have the opportunity to do that. And let me just tell you, as a former EMS guy, and any EMS, EMS responder will tell you this, that not everybody gets that chance. Not everybody gets to live like hell and then get a chance on their deathbed to, you know, repent and come to Jesus, right? And, and the, the, the fact of the matter is, some people on this, it's an... It's in a nanosecond. Like you think you're living and, and everything's going and, and it's all normal. And in a nanosecond, people die. And they went from life to death. There was, there was no last word. There was no even a last thought. Because death can come that quickly. And, and the, but the issue is here, you've you, you got to understand, as long as it's today, today's the day of salvation. That's what the Bible says. And it's never too late to make the right choice uh, for, for the Lord. And, and some of you, <coughs> your lives have been such that you've made a train wreck. You've made one bad choice after another, and maybe your bad choices are catching up with you, just like it caught up with these thieves on the cross. And it can be a situation where you're reaping the consequences today. Maybe that's you today. You're here. You're reaping the consequences of some bad choices in your life. And the, the issue here is that you can cry out to God. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Why? Because you're precious to God. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, consider how precious a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. You're precious to God. Today, maybe you're here. Maybe you're hanging on by a thread. I want to tell you, <coughs> it's not too late. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed. You can have a do-over in your life. And I'm going to give you that opportunity at the end of the message today. And I pray that you will join the dozens who have made professions of faith this weekend. That you can have your sins forgiven. 
And you can be made right with God and you, your life can be changed. And it's a choice that you make. And I want you to see now several things that this, this thief does, the choices that he makes, and I want you to see the, the several aspects of his confession. Now, first of all, would you notice there in verses 40 and 41 that he confessed that he was a sinner? Do you see that? He says there, he's hanging, he rebukes the guy that's mocking Jesus. He says, don't you even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation. Here it is, verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, right? What's he confessing there? He's saying, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And that's the thing. He confessed that he was a sinner. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8 and verse 9, it says, if we, can, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If, verse 9, we confess our sins... That he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It starts with a confession. I'm a sinner. Secondly, he confessed that Jesus was the Savior. Notice there in verse 41. He says, we've done, you know, we're getting the due reward for our, for our deeds. We're sinners. But what's he say about Jesus? This man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. Right? He's, he's he, he, I'm a sinner. Hey, he's innocent. He's the Savior. Here's what the Bible says. If you confess, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, what's the promise? You will be saved. Hey, would you see, notice also, he confesses a reverential fear for God. That's important. Verse 40, what's he say? He answers this, this, this blaspheming uh, thief that's on the one side of Jesus and he, and he says, do you not even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation. Don't you have any fear in your life? Now, let me, let me explain this idea of having a reverential fear be a part of your confession of Jesus. It, I'll put it this way. If you simply have an intellectual belief that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, if you believe intellectually that Jesus died on the cross to save sinners... But it never goes from more of an intellectual appreciation to actually taking root in your heart and causing there to be a fearful response in how you live. In other words, your, your Lord, your Savior, there's a surrender aspect to it. If it never goes from intellectual information, then you, you, may, you will not be saved. And let me back this up with truth. If it were true that just an intellectual belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, would save you, then Satan would be saved. Then the demons would be saved. Because there is, you read the New Testament, there's confessions that they make that you're the Christ, you're the Holy One of God. But they're demons and they aren't saved. Why? Because there's no surrender. There's no reverential fear that says, Jesus, you're Lord. And let me just say this, and I think this is a word from the Lord. There are some here today that that's you. That you have an intellectual belief that Jesus is real, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, but there's been no surrender in your life. There's no fear of God in your life. And you need to take a walk with that because today I'm going to give you an opportunity to correct that to be able to surrender to the Lord. Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, that you're the Son of the living God. And so what did this this thief do? Number one, he confessed he's a sinner. Number two, he confessed that Jesus is the Savior. Number three, he he has a surrender, a reverential fear of God in his life. And fourthly, 
Um, I, well, and by the way, on that reverential fear, James 2.19, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, James says. Good for you, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. He's making that same point. Look, the demons know intellectually that Jesus is God, but they ain't saved, right? And so there's that. Belief has to be accompanied with a reverence. It has to be, you know, that reverence has to lead to a confession and a surrender. And, and um, Romans 10, 9 and 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so then what, is, what does this guy do? Fourthly and finally, Notice there in verse 42, he cries out to Jesus. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a confession of faith. It's a confession of crying out to the Lord. And you need to do that today. You need to come to the place where you cry out to the Lord. Lord, have mercy on me. Save me. Forgive me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I want you to see Jesus' response because this is really important. Look there, verse 43. Jesus answers him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I want you to think about the mechanics of the cross because Jesus is suffocating to death right here. He's hanging on the cross. It's so important to Jesus that he give this man assurance of salvation that he was willing to pull up against those nails to take a breath to fill his lungs so that that air can then be expelled through his trachea across his vocal cords so that he can assure this man, today you will be with me in paradise. And what's he doing? He's assuring every last one of us that, that if you as well will be like this thief on the cross, confess that you're a sinner, confess that Jesus is the Savior, confess a fearful reverence for God and cry out to Jesus that just as he was assured of his salvation, you can be assured of your salvation today. So critically important. Well, finally, I want to close with a great commission. Let's go back to verse 26. Focus here on Simon of Cyrene. As they led Jesus away, verse 26, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. The idea is he's coming from a faraway country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now, he's a Cyrenian. That tells us that he's from the area of Cyrene. And the, the idea here, they press him into service. Okay, Simon had no doubt traveled from Cyrene, because it says he came from the country. Cyrene is modern-day Libya. It's in northern Africa. So it's about an 800-mile journey. So very likely, who is Simon? He's a Passover pilgrim. And he has made the journey, and it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime journey that he has made to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. He's a, he's a, uh, he's a Gentile convert to Judaism. And so he's made this 800-mile trek. He's looking forward to participating in the Passover festivities. And all of a sudden, they interrupt him, and the Roman soldier puts him to work. And they had the right to do this. All the Roman soldier had to do by law was to take his spear, turn the flat end of the spear, and lay it on your shoulder and give you a command, and you were obligated by law to do it. And so the law said, for instance, that the soldier could tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I want you to carry all my gear for a mile. And the only acceptable answer according to the law was yes, sir. If you said no, then they would introduce you to the business end of their spear and they would say, fine, you're not going to carry anything for the rest of your life, you're dead. 
right? So they, they interrupt Simon. He's coming to participate in the Passover festivities, and they say, now you need to carry his cross. Now, Simon would have been bummed at this. Why? Because here he's made this once-in-a-lifetime journey to celebrate the Passover, and now he's got to carry this bloody cross. He is then defiled. He won't be able to go and partake of the Passover and participate in the Passover services. So he's, he's forced to do this. He would have been highly bummed that he had to do this. But here's the thing. What he didn't realize was that he wasn't just participating in a Passover ceremony. He, by divine providence, is participating in the Passover fulfillment. And he, he's compelled to do this. And I could go off on this. I'll just simply say this. Sometimes God compels you to do things and you don't like what you're compelled to do. But sometimes those turn out to be the greatest blessings in our lives. And it was certainly the greatest blessing in his life because the text of the Bible seems to suggest that Simon became a believer after this experience. That, 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 you know, as you read through the Gospels, you read through Mark, you read through the book of Romans, it, it suggests there, it tells us that Simon had sons that, that became leaders in the early church. And the implication seems to be that Simon himself came to be a follower of Jesus after this experience. Now, what did he do? He had to pick up Jesus' cross and he had to, he had to follow him, basically. And Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, he said it in Mark's gospel, he also said it in Luke's gospel, I'll put it on the screen for you. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and I'm wrapping it up here. This action of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it was meant to change your life. And many of you here, uh, you, you have a saving faith in Jesus. I'll address you in a minute. Some of you here today, you're outside of a saving faith in Jesus. And I want you to understand for you today, you need to hear the cross is an act of Jesus' love. It's an act of his grace. It's an act of his mercy. And it is poured out for you today. And it is an invitation that you can have your sins forgiven. You can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. You can have a do-over with God. God can and will change your life. All you have to do, like the thief on the cross, is cry out to him. And that's what the cross is to you today. It's a symbol and an act of Jesus' love and grace. For the rest of you, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, listen, for you, I want you to understand what's the takeaway for you. How do you put feet on your faith today? Understand the cross for you is a symbol of action. It's a symbol of action because you have received Jesus' action on the cross, Jesus' act of love, his act of grace, his act of mercy poured out for you and you have believed that and you've cried out just as the thief did and you have been forgiven and cleansed of your sins and now it becomes a symbol of action where Jesus wants to continue his work through you. And we are reminded today that we are to deny ourselves, that we're to pick up our cross daily and follow after Jesus, the symbol of dying to self and living for Christ. Not to earn God's love, but to be ambassadors of his love to a lost and dying world. I want to, cl- I want to close right now with three questions. I'm going to put them up on the screen. We'll come back to them. Three questions. Number one, who rules and reigns in your life? I want you to take a walk with these questions this week. Who is it that rules and reigns in your life? Is it the Father in heaven, or is it the Father of lies? Second question, 
what are some specific things that Jesus did on the cross that communicate his great love for you? Here's why I ask it that way. Because a lot of times, as I said earlier, people will talk about what Jesus did on the cross and they take the guilt angle, okay? What I want you to do is to take a walk with how or what are the many things that Jesus did leading up to the cross, said leading up to the cross, did and said on the cross. What are the many ways, and you can see them, I've already given you a couple today. The fact that Jesus would endure the pain to give assurance of salvation, that's one of the ways that he manifested it. The, the, the fact that in the same light, Jesus pulled up on those, those, those nailed, scarred hands and he pulled up and took in a breath to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I just gave you a couple of freebies. There are many ways that we see God's love manifested through his work on the cross. Third question, what is it that hinders you from denying yourself and picking up your cross. As I said, this is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day thing. Jesus said in one of the Gospels, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, follow after me. And there are things that happen daily that hinder us from being willing to do that. We want to take a walk this week on what are those things.